Well, this evening is our uh, fourth unit in a biblical counseling series, and I'll look to have one other um, opportunity to talk biblical counseling with you next Sunday night, and then that will conclude our Sunday night services throughout the course of the year. So we've got one more after this, and I think that session is really going to jump into the practice or the application of biblical counseling. How do lives change? How do lives change? So we'll get into that aspect of biblical counseling next week. As far as an introduction for this week, what I wanted to take a look at was a short story called The Emperor's New Clothes, and it was written by Hans Christian Andersen in 1837. You might know this story well. It's a short tale of a vain emperor who has his mind set on having the latest and greatest clothing to wear and display. He hires two weavers of clothing, both of them con men, and they promise the emperor a new suit of clothes that they say is invisible, but only to those who are unfit for their positions and either stupid or incompetent. And so the emperor doesn't want to dismiss this guy, and he doesn't want to uh, not think wisely of this guy's clothing. So he goes ahead and allows them to make their clothing. And the ministers of the emperor, they can't see the clothing either. But they pretend that they can for fear that they would lose their employment. And the weavers then don the clothing on the emperor, who begins to parade around this clothing that he's wearing, this, this new glorious outfit made of nothing. The parading of the emperor in his new clothes continues outdoors in a procession before all the royal subjects who bow in honor and admire the emperor in his great clothes. And then a child in the crowd, a child in the crowd too young to understand the desirability for keeping this pretense continuing, blurts out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all. And the cry is then taken up by others as well. The emperor realizes the assertion is true but continues the procession. Two stories to learn here. This story has a direct correlation or parallel with American culture, our country, and counseling. The con men came to the American people. They sold them psychology as a means to understand the human soul. And then Jay Adams stood up and said, your system is godless and ineffective in 1970. We've been advocating for and advancing a worldview that presupposes the Bible is right, where God is exalted because he alone owns truth, where Jesus Christ is King, Lord, and Savior, and where the scriptures are inerrant, infallible, and completely sufficient. Further, this worldview completely understands that man is filled with sin to the core, so critical for our worldview that we are advancing. Tonight, though, we're going to look to compare our worldview system with other systems that have been advocated going back into the 18th century, and really that go back even further than that. Their roots are are way back, even beyond the Enlightenment period. But the Enlightenment, they they certainly start to kick up. And I'd like to look at a a scripture with you, and then we'll jump into a case study before we get into the comparisons. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 15, 14. Romans 15, 14. I just want you to remember that the key word for biblical counseling is nuthateo. Nuthateo. That's the Greek word. And it means to admonish. When you see it in your Bibles, it's usually admonish. And you see Paul say teaching and admonishing, these type of things. It means to put into the mind, to insert or instruct corrective advice into the mind. It presumes, this nuthateo, it presumes a problem and at least two people being involved, and it assumes a loving act is what's going to follow, right? Teaching and admonishing. A loving act is going to follow. 
It does not presume punishment. And I want to read Romans 15 with you to help set your minds at this case before we launch into this case study. Look at Romans 15:14. Paul says to the Romans, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. What did Paul say in this statement to these Romans? He basically said the title of J. Adams' book, You're Competent to Counsel. You are competent to counsel. That's what he said in this verse, right? So let's go ahead and take a look at a case study then. The counselor for this case study, his name is Garrett, Garrett Higby, and he had Tony and Lisa come into his office. Tony and Lisa. They're in their late 30s. They're married. They're believers. He is an associate pastor and the leader of a homeless ministry. They have no kids, but he's got a lot of responsibility. Even at the complex that they live, he helps with the management there to sort out uh, people's cares and needs in their complex. From the outside, everything with these two people looks great, Tony and Lisa. They're, they're not problem people. They're model Christians, for that matter, until the collapse. One night, Tony is overcome with extreme paranoia, fear, and delusions. He began yelling screaming and crying uncontrollably in the house, leaving Lisa with only one option. She called 911 and reported, he won't stop screaming. What do I do? I need help. I need help. Certainly help did come in the form of police officers and medical personnel. And this associate pastor was taken to a psychiatric hospital for 10 days. He was labeled bipolar, given medication and education about his debilitating disease. Did he work himself into becoming bipolar? He thought so. Did Lisa lose the man that she was married to? Would he ever come back? Will he do this again? And what about raising children? Should they raise children in this environment if he's capable of doing these things? Let me ask you this. Do you want to step in and give Tony and Lisa advice? Do you have something to offer Tony and Lisa? Will he do this again? What would you say to Tony and Lisa? Biblical counseling is what they need. Biblical counseling is what they got. I want to walk you through how Garrett took them through this process of biblical counseling. They need to know what God thinks. They've heard what man thinks. They've heard what the psychologists think. But they they need to know what God is saying in this instance in their life. Is God in the mess of your life? In his, in, in being in the mess of your life, is he in all of the mess or only when the professionals say that he is? Garrett began to give them biblical counseling. The first thing Garrett wanted to do with Tony was to rule out any physical issues, any existing physical struggles for which their medication would be required. We love medical doctors, medically trained professionals, because they help understand the body. If you're, it, my wife has a thyroid condition, and that's something that requires medication. That's, that's something that's normal. It, it's, it can be regulated. We want to understand these things. The answer to that question for Tony was no. A medical evaluation showed that none of Tony's issues were caused by any medical condition. Second, Garrett wanted to ask further questions to understand the circumstances around the collapse. Okay. We don't believe that he was walking along and his life hit bad point number six and then all of a sudden the collapse was point ten and we jumped from six to ten overnight. 
We don't believe that. We believe that he was moving through life, and this next collapse, this event, was really moving from 9 to 9.5 or 9.5 to 10. It really, it's really the next step. And so Garrett wants to uncover that with questions. And he found out Tony was very often experiencing anxiety and depression. Go figure. From various periods of time. Tony was physically neglecting his body of sleep and had poor self-care habits. Tony's life, additionally, was marked with long-standing pattern of being self-sufficient. Third, Garrett kept asking questions that revealed heart issue themes. I want to look back at your life, and I want to see all the themes of your life that kind of get you to this point. What got you here? Tony felt rejected by his father, envious of his brother, even used by the senior pastor of his church. Shockingly, he admitted personal communion with God was absent. He was allowing self-sufficiency to join forces with bitterness, anger, rejection, envy, and pride. These pointed toward the theme of Tony's most dominant heart issue, fear. Fear was his most dominant heart issue. Fear of man drove him to great levels of performance, so much so that his faith became performance-based. His faith became performance-based. He had an insatiable desire for significance and the affirmation of male authority figures. Garrett concluded that Tony had a worship disorder, not a debilitating disease. Do you see the difference? He had a worship disorder, not a debilitating disease. Garrett wanted Tony and Lisa to see that while these symptoms of bipolar are real, the underlying cause might be different from what they were taught or even what they believed. He goes on to say, we wanted Tony to see that many of his symptoms were, in fact, the result of root heart issues. Two things here, real quick. Do you trust a non-Christian to diagnose your car? Well, sure you do. They're, they're professionals that understand how cars work. Do you want them diagnosing your anger or your bitterness? No, you, you, you want a professional on this, right? Well, my point is that any human being can categorize or label behavior patterns. Bipolar is a label. The world needs labels. That's great. That's fine. Keep your, keep your labels. That's fine. However, bipolar is not an understanding of the heart condition. It's, it's, an, it's not an interpretation of a behavior. And bipolar is not a solution. God doesn't care how long you've been bipolar or how bipolar you are. He's going to punish you eternally for the sin that you commit, whether you're bipolar or not. Isn't he? What is missing in this? Humanity has no desire to acknowledge the righteous standard of God. That's what's missing in that label. Second point. Only regenerate, born-again Christians can look beyond a label to see a person struggling in their walk with God, trying to understand Him and worship Him right. These experts admit that they can't change the human heart. But here's the thing. You and I know who can change the human heart. And we know how He does His heart-changing surgery. Garrett sought then to reframe the conversation for Tony and Lisa. Instead of secular terminology, let's use God's words. Instead of secular reasoning, let's use God's reasoning about how man works and about what man's most basic needs are. Tony had shared his story on his terms. Now Garrett needed to interpret and reframe Tony's story on God's terms. 
and with biblical words. In reframing, Garrett had three goals. He wanted to get Tony to see God's character and compassion from the lens of Scripture. He wanted to get Tony to see himself and his problems as God does through the lens of Scripture. And he wanted Tony to feel God's conviction and comfort through the lens of Scripture. After 16 hours of intensive counseling over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Tony was able to see his fear of man, his performance-based faith, his poor view of God and poor view of Scripture, his unbiblical view of suffering, and his high view of his own thoughts and his own reasoning. And then Tony was able to repent of his fear, bitterness, and anger. He was able to repent of trusting himself more than God. He was able to seek then ultimately reconciliation with his dad for things that have been going on for a long time. He was able to truly understand what it means to abide in Christ and to receive the forgiveness of God. Engaged deeply in new church is what he did when he moved away from his community. He he was then able to engage deeply in in a community of believers. And he was able to take these theological truths and endure a challenging six-month period where you wonder, is this really the way that I'm supposed to think? Can this really make a difference to my life? You know, ultimately, he was able to dump the psychiatric medications, cold turkey, against the advice of the biblical counselor and the prescribing psychotherapist. Garrett said this of Tony. His stress and anxiety were due to a history of unforgiveness, fear of man, and unbiblical responses to conflict, especially interpersonal problems. Ultimately, Tony had never fully embraced the gospel or lived it out consistently. Did you catch that last part? He never fully embraced the gospel Well, that's a shot in the arm to a guy who was an associate pastor, huh? Or live it out consistently. I present this case to you to help you see psychological labels are like the emperor's clothes. And biblical counseling can defeat these labels. I want you to see how that theocentric, that God-centered worldview of biblical counseling can handle the labels that society will throw out. The labels don't matter. The Holy Spirit And our knowledge of him and the power of him is what really matters. So where do the labels come from? They come from psychology. And what do we understand? What do we need to understand about psychology? Well, that's our next piece of our conversation tonight about psychology and and psychiatry. Psychology literally means soul study. And I want to distinguish it from psychiatry. Psychology is this. Psychology is the science of behavior and mind observations, gathering data, and establishing general principles. That's what psychology seeks to do. And there are things that we can look at with psychology and we can say, okay, if you're going to stay over there observing people and watching people and then slapping labels on behavior, I get what you're doing. That's fine. Go ahead. That doesn't hurt me. It's actually, in some instances, helpful. Great. It's it's like you want to watch the sharks from the boat, following them, identifying them, what kind of sharks they are, patterns of behavior, different colors on their skin, that's great. So imagine they're in the boat with the the psychiatrist. Here's what psychiatry is. It's the medical specialty devoted to the diagnosis, prevention, study, and treatment of mental disorders. You catch those words? Diagnose, prevent, treat mental disorders. 
Whoa, whoa, hold on. This is unsettled science, people. Effectively, what you just did is you're on the boat with a psychologist and they're looking over the side and seeing what's in the water and you just dove in to go down and try to hug that shark. It's <laughs> the worst thing you could do. Do you see the difference between the two? Somebody got confident way too quickly and made a fool out of themselves. That's the psychiatrist. The psychologists don't look favorably on the psychiatrist. And in all honesty, psychiatrists don't look very favorably on themselves. There are several psychiatrists that are anti-psychiatry. Take this reading, for instance, from Time magazine. Psychiatrists themselves acknowledge their profession often smacks of modern alchemy, full of jargon, obfuscation, and mystification. But precious little real knowledge. As always, psychiatrists are their own severest critics. Thomas Saz insists that there is really no such thing as mental illness. E. Fuller Torrey is willing to concede that there are few brain diseases like schizophrenia, but says that they can be treated with only a handful of drugs that could be administered by general practitioners and internists. By contrast, on the other side of the pendulum, inside of psychiatry, is R.D. Lang, who is certain that schizophrenia is real, and he believes that schizophrenia is good for you. That's psychiatry. Yet, regarding psychology, John MacArthur would remind us that psychology is not a uniform body of scientific knowledge, like thermodynamics or organic chemistry. Further, he says that psychology is no more a science than the atheistic evolutionary theory upon which it is based. There's a journalist named Carl Krauss, and he said this as a summary of psychologists. He said, psychoanalysis is not a science but a religion, the faith of a generation incapable of any other. The faith of a generation incapable of any other. I thought that summed that up pretty well. Consider that for a period of time, there was this whole idea of phrenology. Are you familiar with this one? Phrenology. Phrenology was a, a prominent system in, in psychology. Phrenologists, they studied skull features or bumps on your head. They even came up with a map of the skull and all the different areas where it was believed that certain regions were determinative of an individual's psychological attributes. So they'd rub your head. They'd, rub, they'd literally get their hands on your head and rub around, feel it for the bumps on your head. Ultimately, this practice was abandoned by psychology, but, now, uh, but, but not without placing you know, ultimately a permanent lump in the mind of psychologists and psychiatrists. What are the psychological schools of thought that have paved the way? Who are the men? Who are the women? What are the ideas? What are the foundational systems of psychology to which all psychologists and psychiatrists derive their own version of the psychology or the psychiatry that they practice today? I want to take a look at a few of those with you. The first one is Freud, Sigmund Freud, an Austrian Jew, right at the turn of the 20th century. He died in 1939. We all know how prominent this man was. He believed that the Bible was basically a bunch of fairy tales. He said that religion belongs to the infancy of the race, the infancy. Believers, you guys, y'all, you're a bunch of babies, at least with Freud in the room. Because he's an expert. And in his system, he said that man has three parts. Now, this is where the evening gets a little painful for you. And I'm sorry. We're just going to go through this. <laughs> I'm going to present these three parts to you. And you're just going to have to deal with it. So it's kind of like uh, learning a new board game. <laughs> just play along, okay? 
in Freud's system, there is the id. There's the id. The id is the internal, basic, primitive wants, impulses, and drives of a man. Usually in Freud's mind, they were sexual, they were aggression. Those are inside the man, the id. Okay? And suppressing the id is the superego, the superego. It roughly acts like the conscience. And in Freud's system, the superego, the conscience, is the culprit because it's constantly repressing the id. The superego is influenced largely by the culture, by parents. It's, the, it's, it's an overactive superego that, that ultimately frustrates the id because the two of them, they're fighting. And they're fighting in the subconscious. They're fighting, the battle is in the subconscious. The ego, then, is the conscious self. The ego operates in the area of responsibility. But these two guys who are duking it out in the subconscious, they're operating in the area of irresponsibility. So the problem happens when the superego keeps holding down or forcing down the id and it produces guilty feelings. Those guilt feelings aren't real. And the therapist's job is to help by dispelling the false guilt laid on the person, the, the counselee, by the superego. Effectively, the therapist needs to align itself with the id, the internal man, the one that's got aggression and sexual desires. You align yourself with the id, and then you start fighting it out with the superego, the conscience. You see a problem with that? <laughs> fighting the conscience. Man is an animal composed of three parts. Guilt is the result of imposed standards of society, parents, and others. You have to defeat the conscience, the superego, and release the id. This will actualize human potential. Oh, boy. This is, what, this is the foundational belief. Everything in psychology, this, this is the one. This is the big one, and everything moves forward from here. Well, from there, you get neo-Freudians, and the neo-Freudians aren't too much better. They just believe that man was inferior, born weak and small, and that being inferior, he needs to ultimately become superior. Karen Horney and Alfred Adler are names associated with neo-Freudianism. B.F. Skinner, his system was called behaviorism. Behaviorism. Behaviorism is, oh, this guy, B.F. Skinner, he taught at Harvard from 58 to 74 as the professor of psychology at Harvard. His system works like this. Man is a conditioned animal, ultimately a blank tablet. His environment has wreaked havoc on him, and it's the failure, not man. Man's not responsible. Guilt is not important in this system. There are no real evils in his system. Free will in his system is an illusion. He has what he calls principles of reinforcement. If you're familiar with Pavlov and Pavlov's dog, these, these are the kind of things that he would do. If an action has a bad consequence, you are likely not going to repeat that action. But if an action has a good consequence, then you're likely going to repeat that action. And the idea here is that whether you get a reward or you get a punishment, you can get the behavior from people that you want, right? The military, particularly in the Navy, we had a special way of communicating this for unit performance and work enjoyment. There's a common expression. The beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> Have you heard that one? And then on the weekends, you get an opportunity to, to come in for mandatory fun, mandatory fun. That's when you throw on your, your best dress uniform and you head over to the CEO's office or his house for you know, two or three hours of socializing, mandatory fun. Many people, unfortunately, use 
this method, behaviorism, as their primary form of parenting. See a problem here? You can get short-term results, can't you, if you induce a behaviorism model of parenting into your house. But you can't get long-term results. You'll get long-term disaster is what you'll get because you can't get heart change in a behaviorism system. Skinner's model, ultimately, it, created, uh, it was to create a practical system of rewards and punishments. This is a system of, of slapping the hand or, or giving a cookie, and it works on the principle of manipulating behavior. The client says what they want or what they don't want. The therapist then comes in and structures an environment for the client that rewards or punishes accordingly, and you learn not to touch the electric fence, or you, or you learn to be good because it always gets you cookies and chocolate, or it keeps away the hand slapper. That's behaviorism. You move to the, the, uh, the next system, Carl Rogers' system. He called this system third force. He believed that Pavlov and the empirical observations of human behavior, those studies were kind of the first wave of psychological thinking and counseling. You move to the second wave, and you get Freudianism and psychoanalysis group. Rogers believed that he himself was part of the third wave of psychologists who kept advancing this science of the soul study. His system goes like this. Man is basically good, pretty much like the rest of the systems. Man is basically good. He has the potential to answer his own problems. He'll mature like a flower, just like a flower. Just let him open up. Environment is the problem, which removes his responsibility. He's not responsible. Guilt is not important. He needs help to realize his potential by focusing on this. Get this. By focusing on his feelings. Oh, if you just focus on his feelings and make him happy. He, he advocates a non-directive viewpoint. Non-directive viewpoint, which allows the counselee basically to do the counseling. Don't tell them where they're wrong. Just shepherd them along. The counselor's job is to become a wall that the counselee just fires ideas off of. Jay Adams gives us an example of this in his book. I'm going to do it for you. So <laughs> this is funny. You got the client over here and the Rogerian counselor over here. I'm really upset. I see that you're torn in two. That's right. I'm, I'm very distressed. I see that you're quite troubled. My, my difficulty is that I don't know what to do about a certain problem. You're trying to find a solution. Yes, yes, that's right. I've had problems with homosexuality. Do you think that's wrong? I see that you're asking me whether homosexuality is ethically or religiously proper. See a problem here? <laughs> just duck and avoid, just create the wall and, and let the conversations bounce off. Rogers insists that counselors should give no advice. Roger, Rogerians don't even seek to collect data because the answers are all inside the counselee. You just need to give enough question and time to elicit all of their thoughts and ideas and let them bounce off the wall and let them kind of sit and marinate in their own thoughts and ideas. Jay Adams says of this idea of Roger's stance that it avoids help. It avoids advice. It avoids value judgments. And further, it avoids applying divine declarations to personal problems. Roger's view says the answer is within man and guilt must go away. Man must become comfortable with himself and the counselor is just a sounding board who allows man to self-discover his answers. 
You know, there's another system, family system. You don't really need to know this one, a guy named Ackerman. But this is where he's the guy who put forward the dysfunctional family theory. So that's where this word comes from, dysfunctional. It's all a matter of your interpersonal relationships inside your family. And if we can get everybody together to sit down, I'm sure if you get everybody together, you can charge more because there's more people in the room. But if we get everybody together and talk these things through, that's how we're going to resolve these things. All of these systems are failures. They're all failed systems. I would share this with you. Jay Adams does make a distinction that is helpful. He says that of these systems that I just presented to you, there are those systems that believe in expert knowledge, expert knowledge. And then there are those systems that believe in common knowledge. The experts are Skinner and Freud. They're the ones that advance, oh, you got to go see the therapist. We're the only ones that have the answers. You need us. And on the other side, the common knowledge that's the Rogerians, where they believe that the, man, the answers are inside the man and you just need to allow him to talk through his own system. Rogerians believed uh, differently about the counseling process. The statistics revealed that people generally get out of their ruts. Regardless of what counseling system you put them in, they'll end up flaking out of counseling and going and figuring out life on their own, ultimately, in, in a lot of cases. They'll just make their way through life. And, and Rogers kind of honed in on this, so he, and he said... So let them work out their problems for themselves. Well, you can imagine, it's, a, it's, it's not too much of a stretch then to understand that the, the church gravitated toward the Rogerian model and has made great friends of Rogerian-type psychologists and psychiatrists. That's a sad statement for the church to get involved with those folks. So where do they fail? Well, they fail on multiple levels. Systematic theology, right? Systematic theology, 101. Where'd they fail? Theology proper, right? The study of God. We don't want to know who God is. He's not part of our system. Okay, move past that. What else did they fail on? Anthropology, the study of man. Man's inherently good. No, no, he's not. He's inherently wicked. Big worldview difference between these two. This, all these systems, they say this. Man is basically good. He's able to answer his own problems. His, his answers lie within him. He must access and understand his past experiences. The root cause of all problems lies with someone else, which means that poor little counselee over in these models is a victim. He's a victim, not a perpetrator, not a glory stealer from God, but a victim. Of course, if you buy into the system, into this worldview, then you must go see the psychiatrist or the psychotherapist. And your answers then aren't free. You're going to pay for them. And ultimately, as we just saw with the Rogerians, you might end up just talking to a wall for an hour. <laughs> Further, you must believe and understand that for these people, God, prayer, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, these are all inadequate and far too simplistic for solving your complex life and your issues. These are the significant forces and failures that have brought us modern secular counseling. John MacArthur says there is no unified science of psychotherapy, only a cacophony of clashing theories and therapies. You can go out into this community and ask the psychotherapist or the psychiatrist where they practice, on what scheme, on what schematic, and each one ultimately is going to give you a different road. That's so different than the way Eric and I think here. We are so aligned on everything that the Bible says and teaches. 
He, he doesn't need to be here listening to me. He'll get the CD, but we trust each other. Where did all of our values stem from? Were they inside of us, or did we get them from outside? From the scriptures. Heath Lambert says, The work of secular counseling practitioners is not neutral, and it is not scientific. They have a worldview from which they approach problems. The worldview dishonors God and his rightful place in each counselee's life. Their stream of thought is broken even from the beginning because they are disinterested with this principle that I've talked about from the beginning of our sessions. Do you know where God's righteous standard is in your life? Do you know the path to his righteous standard? That's where they miss most often. They won't ever look there. Does secular counseling make a difference? Can they get things right? Well, yes and no. Does the rain fall on all people or just a select few? Well, it falls on all people. God's common grace can allow a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist to come up with common sense answers, even, even biblical notions, like the idea of self-control. That sounds pretty pleasing, right? Might be helpful, right? Okay, well, what about uh, humility? Does humility answer a few things? They, they love to say, hey, you just need to eat a little humble pie. That's the way they present it to you. We present it to you. You need to be humble like Christ, Philippians chapter 2. They just say, eat a little humble pie. But they get it, right? They get the idea. Humility. What else do they get? Grace. It's nice to have grace to resolve conflicts. Yet look at all that they miss. Total depravity of man. Sin nature abounding. The call to repent of your sins. Because it's God that you've offended the most with your behavior. Because you've missed and obliterated a call to his righteous standard. Because you were made in his image for him to glorify and honor and worship him. That's what they miss. Secular counselors may be good for a conversation, some of them, but nothing they do has an eternal value. They may get you to stop, remove, or discontinue bad behavior, but they will never take you to the Savior. Instead, you will just end up turning from one idol to the next. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this. I want you to think Paul's words as he says this to these Thessalonian church. For people everywhere report how you welcomed us and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Where would Paul want to counsel people? From their idols to other idols or to other idols or from idols to the one true living God. That's what we want. That's where we're taking people. Like unto secular counseling, then, is Christian counseling. Christian counseling. This is a hard one because in many respects, the people that I'm going to talk about next are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't doubt that. From my heart, I don't doubt that. But I've I've seen them, and I know that they're involved with churches, even churches that I candidated at. These men who would be in this category of Christian counselors are on elder boards, and they're practicing inside of their own church. We do share commonalities with Christian counselors. We share great conservative Christian circles, which means largely agreement on big theological realities. We agree that when we see a hurting person, they deserve care. We agree that psychologists make true and helpful observations because they're dealing with observations, and they can slap their labels on, and that's fine. Yet in the end, we have massive disagreements. They say, for instance, they say there is a necessity of using secular counseling techniques to help people. 
and that we must augment scripture with secular practices, bringing together truth from both sources. They challenge the sufficiency of the Bible as a counseling resource by saying that there are many topics to which the scriptures don't speak. And they say that there are gaps in the scriptures that create a need, a need which is filled by psychology. However, John MacArthur says this. He says, Christian psychology is an attempt to harmonize two inherently contradictory systems of thought. Their regular use of the terms illness, problem, conflict, and compulsive behavior, treatment, and therapy are carefully selected to avoid the moral overtones of biblical words like sin, repentance, guilt, depravity, and salvation. Do you see a problem? Further, we are concerned with compromise on the part of Christian counselors to practice professional counseling requires a state license. To get a state license, you must agree to counseling on the, along the lines of the worldview of the counselee. Dr. John Street down at the Master's College, he says that a license ultimately disqualifies you to counsel. This is a tremendous credibility problem, and here's why. Because signing off on a state board requirement, which assumes the viability of all worldviews, it removes your ability to contrast their false worldview with a biblical worldview, removes the opportunity. Moreover, who are the Christian counselors accountable to? What is their source of credibility? Is it not the state board to whom they have pledged their allegiance? Is it merely a certificate on the wall for a degree conferred upon them by a highly secular government-run institution maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago? Is it the smattering of letters at the end of their name prominently displayed on their business card? Is that where their credibility comes from? Is it their billing rate? Oh, this guy charges $300. Surely he's got to be good. Does his credibility include the support of a local church that upholds biblical authority, that's governed by qualified elders who practice actively church discipline? With Christian counselors, there's this issue of compensation. We fully believe that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Yet it seems that the biblical advice is a stewardship that's passed down from generation to generation, and it should be free. Further, it seems that compensation may keep the counselor more quiet when speaking directly might be the best course of action. And compensation may make the counselor awkwardly selective in his terms when the truth needs to be made plain. Compensation for dispensing life-altering truth creates an unclear motivation. It creates an unclear motivation. Is the counselor's desire to feed his family or is it to see God's word change lives? Because for him, actually removing problems means removing his income stream. Do you see a conflict of interest? Turn to Proverbs 3.5. Finally, I would ask this. Does the Christian counselor put the emphasis of change in the right place? Does the Christian counselor put the emphasis of change in the right place? If you are needed week after week, the counselee becomes dependent on you. Do you have the desire to point them to a source of strength and truth outside of you and your office? Do they believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who must do the work 
and that he does the work when people open up the word of God and read the word of God and are explained to them the word of God? Do they send, home, do they send the, the counseling home to read, to meditate, to memorize the scriptures, the truth of God's word? Weekly paid counseling communicates a message to the counselee about the counselor's understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the scriptures, and the power of Christ in you, the hope of glory. They're trying to keep you on their schedule and their payroll. And meanwhile, I'm trying to get you off my schedule, in all honesty. (laughs) No offense. No offense. By empowering you, though, right? Empowering you with homework to create a hunger for God's word, solid theological doctrines, and interaction with the person of the Holy Spirit who you claim is inside of you. Therefore, Christian counseling is not biblical counseling. That's my stance. Christian counseling is not biblical counseling. There's a distinction in terms and practice. It cannot be said of Christian counselors that they put into practice the wisdom that God brought through Solomon right there in your lap, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I'll read it to you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Knowledge then is what we need to decide where does it come from? Where does knowledge come from? There's four different sources of knowledge. Knowledge can be found in four places. It can be found in intuition, which is your feelings. Knowledge can be found in logic, which is reasoning. Two plus two is four, red and yellow, or red, red and yellow make orange. And it can be found in empirical evidence. Fires produce ash. It's happening. We can see it, empirical evidence. The fourth is revelation, that which comes from a supreme source. Four different kinds of knowledge. Intuition, logic, empiricism, empirical knowledge, and revelation. I want you to turn to 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to see how Peter throws out experience, logic, and empirical evidence while explicitly leaning on revelation for truth, knowledge, and wisdom. This is an important passage in understanding our scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. They say this, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is of anyone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. He says this right after stating in the previous passage in verses 16 to 19, right there, that he saw Jesus transfigured. And he says, but we have this, the more sure word. And in doing that, he says, my experience is trash. What you hold in your hands with God's word is everything. So when people come to you with a mixed bag of experience, you need to understand that you have the more sure word to share with them, which is Trump's experience. So where do we get our revelation from? Where do we we get our knowledge from? Where's our ultimate source of knowledge? Do we believe with the psalmist? Is the law of the Lord perfect and able to revive the soul in Psalm 19? 
Is the law of the Lord perfect, able to revive the soul? Yes. Yes, it is. 2 Timothy 3.16, you should know well. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The word of God is exactly what we need. It is our source of revelation. And as such, as such, as our source of ultimate revelation, it produces hope. What do counselees that are broken from anything that this world afflicts them with or anything their own heart afflicts them with? What do they need when they walk into your office? What do they need desperately? They need hope. And that's what this has. The word of God is loaded with hope. You as a believer have hope to offer to another soul, to another person. We know the meaning of life. God made you and you exist to glorify him. And what did he promise to you? 1 John 2.25 This is the promise which he himself made to us. Eternal life. That's what he promised you. We've got way more to look forward to than just what this life offers. Whatever satisfaction you can derive from this life. We've got way more to look forward to. Our source of, of knowledge being revelation is loaded with hope. But revelation then this as our source of knowledge also comes with concrete terminology like sin, guilt, shame, repentance, salvation, and the need for these things. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These are important verses to understand that shape how we instruct anyone that we run across in our path. Revelation then also comes with the expense of human wisdom. Revelation, understanding revelation as your source of knowledge comes at the expense of human wisdom and its system of labels, okay? Labels get in the way of repentance. If you have a label card that you can hold up and wave when someone says, hey, you sinned, and you say, whoa, manic depressive. Or you you, you hold up your card and they say, hey, you sinned, and you say, whoa, bipolar. (laughs) Is that going to help? Can you wave the bipolar flag when you get to heaven? You can't do that, can you? There are these flags that you want to wave and say, hey, no, 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 they said that I got this. I, I don't have to repent. Oh, oh no, you, you must repent. We, we must have concrete terminology. If you suffer from the disease of alcoholism, why do you need to repent for your drunkenness? After all, you have a disease, right? You have a disease. And we should feel pity for you. You should then run and go get all the government subsidies that you can handle. But before God, you will not get a discount on your sin. God will not honor your man-made label. He will not honor it. And there's, a, there's another thing. There's unproductive language in counseling. I want to run through some terms for you that are just unhelpful, unproductive. Euphemisms like mental illness, mental disease, chemical imbalance, emotional problems, damaged emotions, Emotional abuse, emotional stress, self-image, self-esteem. How much does the Bible talk about self-esteem? What does it say you are? Pride-filled, right? (laughs) Is that a self-esteem problem? Midlife crisis, codependency. These words are particularly unhelpful, not only in the diagnosis of the symptoms, but in attacking the root issue that brought these things forward. We can add to this list Freud's idea of the subconscious. 
right? That whole fictitious fight that he's got going on with the conscious and the id, the subconscious doesn't exist. I know of the conscious man. I know of the unconscious man. But who, who's this subconscious guy that showed up? There's no such thing. It's a made-up idea. It's not a biblical term, and it's unhelpful. And this whole thing about mental illness, what about mental illness? Thomas Sass, in 1960, wrote a book, and the book's title is this, The Myth of Mental Illness. See, having become established as a psychiatrist himself, he became convinced that the concept of mental illness was vague and unsatisfactory. He was both praised and hated in his own community, but for himself he had to draw the line. And and it seems like he drew the line somewhere along the lines of what Pastor MacArthur said when he wrote this. Not only do psychologists sell supposed cures at a high price, but they also invent diseases for which the cures are needed. ADHD. Their marketing strategy has been effective. Invent the problems or difficulties, harp on them until people think they are hopelessly afflicted, and then peddle a remedy. Sound like a moneymaker, huh? That's a good strategy. The mental illness label is the result of laziness, ignorance, and unbelief. If your knowledge comes from revelation, then the God who removed your heart of stone can also crush your thick-headed pride and end your guilt, shame, and rebellion. Not yours alone, but those of the whole world. The best option then, the only option, biblical counseling. What are we trying to do? The bottom of your page is a triangle. We talk about solid biblical foundations. From where do they flow? Following the theological pyramid, everything begins on the foundation of the word of God. It goes up through interpretation of the scriptures, having a historical, grammatical, hermeneutic applied to them, accurately understanding propositional truth claims that are made, and then collating them into systematic theology, categories one through four, right? One through four. And then at the top of the pyramid, point five, practical theology. We can accurately practice our faith, point five. That's the realm of biblical counseling, point five, the tip of the spirit. It includes having a high view of God, a low view of man, a sufficient view of the scriptures, such that Jesus Christ is magnified and God the Father gets all the glory. That's what we want. Biblical counseling, then, as we understood from previous sessions, is part of the fabric of the church. It is performed under the leadership of qualified biblical elders, elders who understand the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures, As such, these men practice church discipline, which puts teeth into biblical counseling. Therefore, the church must also practice membership, membership, which makes biblical counseling a regular function then of shepherding. Do you see how all those fit together? Do you see how membership fits with shepherding, fits with church discipline, fits with biblical counseling? Biblical counseling, then we have to understand as the only option and the best option is the free option. It's free because I don't want to waste your time and you don't want to waste my time. And so when you come in, I'm not believing that my hour and a half, hour with you, is going to answer all your problems. But if you confess Jesus Christ to me as your Lord and Savior, then I know that you have something working inside of you that you haven't figured out how big he is. And I want to show him to you. And I want to show you the size of your Savior. 
And I want to show you the size of the God to whom you're in rebellion against. And I want to see him author conviction in your heart. We're going to talk about this process next week. How, how do you do that with somebody? How do you walk them through that process? Biblical counseling is free. It's a stewardship that's passed on believer to believer, generation after generation. That's why it's a church function. That's why it's part of the fabric of the church. Biblical counseling is completely outside of the secular systems. It has no city, state, or federal regulation that applies to it at all. Counselors are not bound to a secular worldview. Biblical counselors' integrity remains intact by not signing some state government document that says, I will perform my craft, my practice this way. No, this is God's craft, and it's his practice, and I'm just a steward that's authoring this on his behalf. Nor do biblical counselors pay taxes for their services because we're not collecting fees. We're just making ourselves available like a shepherd makes himself available to his flock to heal the needs of the broken. Every born-again Christian is you. Every born-again Christian is a biblical counselor. If some hurting person walks into you when you're headed up to your car, you have the ability to speak to them about truth. And what do we say that this thing offers first and foremost when someone walks up to you and has a problem? What does it offer first and foremost? It offers hope. You know hope. You own it. It's given to you in the scriptures. If you want to increase your effectiveness, I would just ask that you look to consider choosing to become a member of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Go through the hours of training it requires. Go through the paper writing it requires. Go through the synthesizing of your thoughts that's required. Go through the list of scripture to understand all the propositional truth statements from which you can have a theology of God or a theology of Christ. They're, they're helpful in what they do. This would strengthen your knowledge and convictions of the scriptures and make you more prudent and wise in sharing biblical counseling. Ultimately, we must strive to shepherd the flock well. That's what we're after, right? Now, this is my, my privilege to talk about. I, I have a passion for this because I've seen it change lives. I only look forward to doing it more and more often. We'll talk about it again next week. We'll get into the practical application of it. Uh, we've pretty much closed out our time. If there's any questions, I wanted to take them at this time, and then I'll pray and we'll close. Leaving God out of the answer, indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you, th- doesn't that make sense, though, that psychology and psychiatry showed up on the scene? Doesn't it make sense that we're contending with them now? Doesn't it make sense that they've married themselves and wed themselves to the church, or that the church has wed themselves to them? Doesn't that make sense? That all makes sense. It's all part of what's going on. But it doesn't mean that that's what we are supposed to be doing as the church. We have to do something different. We have to break ties with those things. Yes. Wow. <laughs> That's truth. <laughs> That's truth. Yeah. Anybody else? Let me pray for us. Father God, we just 
know that we need to look to you for all things. We know that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins. That, that conviction is so buried deep inside of our hearts, we will never walk away from that. And Father, as that conviction sits inside of our hearts, help us to recognize what he's doing to build his church, what he has done by sending the Holy Spirit to us, what he has done by sending the Holy Spirit who wrote these scriptures so that we can know hope, know truth, know you perfectly, know what our job is on earth as we live before these people, Lord, that we might call others to repentance, call others to faith and trust in you. Lord, these things that we've shared tonight, Lord, if they seem high and lofty, I I just pray that they would not be. I pray that they would be broken down to the simplicity of we are those who walk with Christ daily, regularly, being sanctified, and our job is to share that with others. And Lord, we, not, we must do this with all diligence. We must continue to increase in our knowledge and understanding of you as part of our sanctification. And let this understanding of biblical counseling just be that. This is the next step of our sanctification, to be qualified and competent to counsel. Make us equipped, Lord. Make us those who are able to offer hope, grace, peace, joy, love, and kindness to those whom we run into in this life, and particularly those of the household of faith, that we might all, Arrive at the mature man for your praise, for your glory and honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.